What up, fam? Welcome back to another episode of The Business of DJing. It's your host, Jamie Selects. Thank you so much again for tuning in. It's been a little while since I've done an episode, but happy to be back. have a quick announcement before I introduce my guest. I launched an online store for all my digital DJ tools on a platform called Gumroad. So you can check it out in the link below, or you can also go to jamieselects.gumroad.com. That's G-U-M-R-O-A-D. What's currently in there are two different DJ business finance trackers. There's like a basic one in Google Sheets, and there's another cool automated one in Airtable where if you upload a CSV of your transactions, it will automatically calculate or um, categorize your transactions for you. There's also a DJ booking system, which, which will pull in your DJ gigs from Google Calendar, and then if you're doing a lot of booking of DJs, you can just add a DJ and it will automatically invite them to calendar invites. Should help you avoid like double bookings and also making sure you have no 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 shows um, and things like that. And then lastly, I have a lifetime product bundle which gives you everything at a discounted price. And then also it gives you access to any future content that I launch in there as well. So go ahead and check it out. JamieSelects.gumroad.com. As always, give me some feedback. Hopefully thing is useful for you. Um, if not, then then let me know. I'll make it better. Cool. So my guest today is DJ Frank G. Frank is the founder and owner of Exclusive DJ based out of Stockton, California. It was an honor to have him on the podcast as he's indirectly had a big influence on my DJ career. We had a great conversation starting with his introduction to DJing as an OG and his path towards starting his own business and how he landed up on uh, focusing on mobile DJing versus club DJing. The differences between those, the pros and cons, and, and how you can decide what's best for you. So really enjoyed this conversation. Hope you do too. Again, we got DJ Frank G out of Stockton, California owner of exclusive dj check it out all right cool what up everybody welcome to another episode of the business of djing it's your host jamie selects thank you again for tuning in today i have a very awesome guest goes by dj frank g owner of exclusive dj very excited to have you on uh, my man thank you for coming on i appreciate you having me on this is pretty exciting cool for sure well uh i had to do this because you're um i wanted to give a little intro so Wanted to start off just by saying you've definitely had indirectly, sort of in a way, had a big impact on my life in the sense that, uh, you know, I've always heard this story from MC, our our, uh, our friend Selecta MC, Marcellus Caton, that, you know, when he was just getting started DJing, uh, that you kind of had uh, some advice for him, like, you know, DJing in the clubs is cool, but there's also, you know, a lot of money to be made, also like a real business that you can create for yourself doing mobiles and, you know, doing mobile DJing and, I learned everything that I know about mobiles, weddings, setting up gear, how to treat clients, uh, a lot, mainly from MC. And so I know you had a big impact on him. So just wanted to start off by saying uh, thank you for that. And, you know, thank you for coming on the show. Um, yeah, no, my pleasure. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I mean, I met Marcellus MC Select years ago when he was uh, – probably just getting into college or right out of high school. Uh, we were doing, I was trying to show my sons who were also into music, uh, not into the mobile game. They just love music. And at that time was probably, let's say 2008, 2009 era. And the EDM music was just barely beginning to explode before it really got to mainstream. And so they fell in love with the EDM music at the time. And I grew up in an era where there were other DJs before me that were doing events in downtown Stockton at the uh, Civic Auditorium. 
And so I was very fascinated and very intrigued with attending these events because they would have rappers at the time. Hip hop was a big thing in the late mid to late eighties. So there was artists like Easy E, uh, you know, the old hip hop heads from back in the day were coming to the Civic Auditorium, which was kind of odd at the time. You know, a lot of the uh, breakbeat type music, like your Egyptian lovers, your LA Dream Team. Um, groups and artists that were just hitting the music scene when things weren't really mainstream. It was kind of, you know, based off anybody who was doing mix shows on, on radio and you would hear the music. And I grew up on that style of music, if that makes any sense. So I was always fascinated, you know, to go see these artists that I would only be able to hear on tape through the radio or if I went and bought their record. So I didn't know what they looked like. I just know I like their music. And so Long story short, uh, it's a business in the end. And so knowing that there was money to be made because I already kind of had experience having started my own DJ business that if I can show you guys a way to make a little extra income for yourselves when you are in high school, in college, as a mobile DJ to do little house parties here and there, I know that having that extra cash as a young person goes a long way, right? So I had already invested money and gear in myself. So I had the items sitting around and I had a good connection with a uh, guy who had a, a theater here in Stockton. It was called the, uh, at the time, it was years ago, it was called the Stockton Royal. And then it became the Empire Theater on Pacific Avenue, which is the old uh, right. Miracle Mile area. So I, I befriended him and we, we hit it off pretty well. And, and I was able to rent the venue from him to do these dances again with the concept that I had when I was younger and I was going to high school that I enjoyed going to these dances. And I thought, you know what, you guys are in a different world, different style of music, but I would think there's students out there with the lack of things going on in our area that if we can give some of them an outlet, something to do that's positive, um, you know, we could create this. I already had the gear. All I needed was the, the people to come help me put it together. So I, I kind of showed them a little bit about how it was to promote how to throw a dance, the, the logistics of it, um, you know, and all the labor that goes into it. Uh, the funny thing is when you love what you're doing, at least when I'm doing these type of things, it's like, I don't feel that I'm putting any effort or uh, labor into it. So it doesn't feel like it's a heavy load because I'm so involved in the actual production of it. Like I want this to happen. And, you know, you go to a regular job, you're like, man, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of that. And you, you're kind of thinking in that way. This was like, Let's just put it all together. And it was always for fun. So it never really felt like you were working. If that makes right. any sense. You know, and so when that happened, you know, I knew uh, my sons had friends and Marcellus was one of the few uh, young ones that uh, Frank, my son Frank had introduced me to in Esteban. And so we brought him on board. And again, I didn't want to be the DJ. I was, I was, that was not my market. I wanted them to understand how the business worked and how to put a production together. But I didn't want to be the DJ. I just wanted to be able to provide them with the gear that I knew they didn't have at the time, you know? And right. so we sought out younger DJs so that they can invite their high school friends and come have a good time. And it, and it worked out really well. You know, we had a, a one time where we did like a, uh, a donation drive where, you know, kids brought in cans of, of food, of perishable food items that we can give back to the food bank for a, a reduced ticket price. And it was fun. You know, again, we were doing things for the community at the same time, giving the uh, the young adults um, an, an outlet for them to do. And, and we were strictly playing the 
you know, house EDM style of music, because again, that was, was, was barely taken off. And uh, at that time, again, to not make this long winded is when I first had my first uh, connection with MC and, you know, we hit it off pretty well. Cause I, he seemed like a, a smart, young, young man. And uh, we had good conversations and I can say, see it and sense it in his vibe that he's learning something, you know what I mean? And I'm really glad to see where he's at now and what he's doing and that he's able, been able to share this with you guys. Well, yeah, man, we're all, we're eternally grateful for that for that uh that guidance in the young age because it's definitely ingrained in us moving forward, and especially in in him and into into plural, which uh you know is a big part of my life. So thank you for that. Yeah, awesome. Um. Yeah. So why don't we touch base a little bit more on like kind of your intro to DJing? I think you touched on it there with like your early musical influences, but how would you say that? you realize that music you wanted it to be a big part of your life in the beginning and then how did that transfer into actually uh getting like your first set of turntables or what was your first um exposure to dj uh my first exposure to djing was i'm gonna have to say when i started to watch um mtv years ago and they would have video clips of uh people dancing and on occasion, you'd, you'd see a pan off to the left or to the right, and you'd see a, someone in the back, right, with two turntables, playing music, um, not necessarily hyping people up, but he was in charge of the music. And in front of him was always somebody, somebody dancing, having a great time. Mm-hmm. And so what first attracted me was the music, right? And I, w- I grew up in the early 80s, so I, I was a break dancer. You know, that was my first love. It's like, I love the music, so I had friends at that time we were probably i'm going to say 10 to 12 we 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 were in a break dancing group we had the older brothers who were our guiders you know our guidance and um we kind of followed them around and before you know it we had a five or six man breaking group and so that was really fun but what happened then is that um i would also listen to radio a lot and at the time there was a very popular radio station here in town uh, called KUOP and it's actually on the UOP campus right at the very top of the Burns Tower. And every Friday or Saturday night, they would have uh, these DJs just play, again, back to the breakdance and music, your Planet Rock, your Africa Bombada, your, um, what is the DJ fan scratch, Egyptian Lover. That style of breakbeat music is what we were using um, in our practice garages or when we go to compete at a local union hall of some sort, right? Where there would be battles, like legit battles of, of breakdancing. And so obviously that music is being played by somebody and it was obviously the DJ. I had a neighbor at the time I was living in some apartment complexes um, back in the day. And they were, they were uh, in Stockton, they're called the Filbert Arms, right? Filbert Arms was like a big deal back in the day. It's like, that's the hood. And, and I have a love and respect for that because that's the area that I grew up in. So I made a lot of friends, a lot of them still friends of mine today. And I remember one time vividly I opened up my window in my back room. There was only a two bedroom apartment and the, we were on the first floor and behind me was another complex, which had a first and a second floor and, and his apartment complex had a first and a second floor. And I remember looking up out the window and he had opened up his window and I can look straight up and I saw posters on the ceiling of his room. He had opened the door and he put a speaker on the window seal and he started blaring this music, right? It was hip hop. Probably back in the day was probably, uh, I don't know, EPMD, stuff from that era. And it sounded awesome. And then I can hear him 
twiddling around with his mixer and his turntable and doing these scratching and I was like, oh my God, that's dope, right? And so I would just look forward to have him put a speaker out and listen to his, his music while everyone's outside just kind of walking through the apartment complex or his buddies are hanging out outside, either dancing or rhyming or whatever. And, and that was kind of the culture back then. Again, it was hip hop. It was, you know, during the Run DMC days, prior to the Run DMC days, it was all just, you know, uh, boom bop type, type sounds and, uh, and great hip hop. He wasn't playing any of the breakdance and stuff, but it was all hip hop. And it was, it was dope. It was real dope. And that really intrigued me because I was like, you can hear the scratches and it was like, dude, that's, this guy's doing it up there. Right. So I, I wasn't his friend because he was a lot older than I was. So I never had the courage to go knock on his door and be like, yo, can you show me or whatever? But I realized that, okay, that's a DJ and that's the stuff that they're doing on the radio that I can't see. I can only hear it through, through the radio. Right. right, right. So intrigued me. And when I got into high school, I, I met some friends and that were the DJs. One of them was a, uh, was a DJ for the rallies in high school. And he would, on occasion, I think the school would probably allow him to DJ rallies once a month. And I became his friend through other friends because he was already, I think, a senior and I was just coming in as a freshman. And one day we went to his house. He had a basement. You know, it's funny because it seems like every time it relates to old hip hop or just DJs, somebody always has a basement, right? And so he had this basement. And so we went downstairs and he was the first guy that I saw with a set of Technique 1200s. And I was like, whoa, this guy has like legit turntables. I don't know what kind of mixer it was, probably a Gemini back in the day. This was before Newmark even became out. And right. uh, again, great mixer, had a ton of records. And I fell in love with that culture because we started to become friends. We started to do little house parties in there. Again, I had nothing. I was just hanging around with them. So that was a, a big influence for me personally to be just hanging around people who were doing what I wanted to do. And I still had not yet figured out okay, how am I going to get into this? Where's, where am I eventually going to, you know, fall in line with this? So what was that process like for you to like either ask to oh my God. try it out or how did that well, go down? <laughs> I was, uh, you know what? I mean, I was working, did you not? I started working when I was 13. So at the time when I was in junior high, which was 13, 14, they had summer jobs and you can actually apply for a summer job every year. So at the age of 13, I applied for a summer job. You know, you're just doing janitorial work. And I was doing it actually at the junior high that I was, I was attending. So I'd go work there during the summer and it was called the summer youth program. And, and that, I wish they would bring that uh, program back if, if they don't, if they don't, I don't, I don't know what, what the deal is with that, but it allowed people like myself who had no, no experience, obviously we're young, but it gave us an opportunity to find ways to work, legitimately work and, you know, save some money. And so again, this, we're talking back in the day, I think the minimum wage was three thirty-five an hour. So you can imagine how many hours I had to put in to try to save a few hundred bucks, <laughs> Yeah, for real. but I did. But I did, right? I did. And so I, I worked that for two years and I was always asking people like, you know anybody who's got some turntables for sale? And nobody had turntables for sale. So one time a friend of mine told me, oh, you need to go to this store. They've got them on sale right now. So I went to the store and it was called Fred Rated or Federated or Fred Rated. It was on, in Stockton. It was on March Lane. And I went there and I talked to the guy, again, not knowing much about turntables. I just knew that I needed turntables. I didn't really understand the whole pitch concept, 
any of that. I just knew I needed two turntables. So the guy says, oh, we've got them, you know? So I get there and um, the guy sells me one turntable with one pitch and then one turntable without a pitch. And these are belt driven, right? And they were, they were techniques. But again, I didn't know nothing about anything. The, you'd have to pick up the tone arm and then that would actually engage the, the, the table to spin. I didn't realize like, you know, this, anything again, like you're dealing with a 1200, that's, that's a totally different animal. So when I asked the guy, I said, hey, my understanding to be a DJ, you need to have pitch control on both sides so you can, um, you know, you can mix the records. And, and I don't know why, again, I, I was naive. I've done myself. I just had some money in my pocket. I wanted to do this so bad that I wanted to have these things in my possession right away. Yeah. So he told me some line, which to me at the time made sense that, oh, no, you don't have to worry about that. You know, you just have to pitch one side and then the other side you can slow down or, or, or pitch it up with your finger by itself. So you really don't need two pitches or, or something to that degree. And I fell for it. Right. I bought these plastic turntables, belt driven, only to get them home and realize after that I couldn't even scratch on them because, it, you know, the needle would jump right off. The table would stop. The, the turntable would stop spinning. It was ridiculous and again had no guidance so it wasn't like i had a, an older brother or younger brother who who would come with me to these stores it was like all alone so i learned the hard way you know i went and invested on things like this not realizing what i was spending my money on because i was so eager to have these in my possession and so it took a while to finally come up with some extra money and find the real techniques right and a, when yeah. I did, I found like a model 1800, which I haven't seen again, again, uh, ever again, that the pitch control was set up in a different area of the turntable, but it had a pitch control. It was direct drive. So it worked just exactly like the 1200. It just was a different model altogether. And so I got that first. And eventually I came across the 1200 through another friend at another place at another time. Eventually I had both of them, two different mismatched turntables, but they did what they were supposed to. And then the first mixer I bought was um, a realistic mixer from Radio Shack. And I still have that mixer today. I mean, it's kind of beat up and dusty, but I kind of kept it just because it's the first thing I started on years ago. <laughs> you got to uh, probably it. create a shadow box for that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just it, yeah. it's a memory that um, I only know about, but it's, it's, it holds a lot of dear value to myself. And um, so when we had this, now I had the turntables. Now I had high school friends who had, you know, speakers like house stereos. And they would right. tear their parents' house house stereo apart. They would pull out the amplifier <laughs> or the receiver at the time, right. you know. And they had these subwoofers that were probably the biggest ones were probably twelve inches. There were towers, and they would just sit on the ground. And so somebody from high school would be like, "Hey, we're gonna have a party. We, you guys want to come and DJ?" And again, we did this for the love of it. We didn't do it for the money. And so we just wanted to be providing entertainment and playing our music to a group of friends or people that wanted to come and hang out at a house party. So we would lug, you know, his parents' system. We'd take it apart, um, plug all the speakers. And then um, I'd bring the turntables. And then I had another friend of mine who actually went out and bought the records. So he was a real um, vinyl freak and would order these records from Miami. So he had a resource in Miami that he would call, right? Long distance at the time when you're, when you're young and in the 80s, you're picking up the phone, right? A dial tone phone, and you're dialing an area code that is not within your area code. They're immediately charging you, right? So these right, calls were, yeah. yeah. So he that. had, to, yeah, oh, absolutely not. So when you pick up the phone, it becomes, you know, a $20 call because you're having to call long distance to Miami and you have to call under their, their time frame, right? So our time was like 
three hours behind, behind or four hours behind in California, they're ahead. So he had to get up early before he went to school to order these records. And so they would mail us, or specifically him, a list of what the new records were out at the time. So, you know, you got the snail mail. So we'd wait two or three weeks and this new um, list of music or records that were being put out at the time would come in. He'd look them over. We'd look it over and be like, oh, we didn't know much about the song. We just knew about the artist. So if there was a bass record, you know, like um, MC Shy D or uh, Mantronics, uh, Play D, anything that had certain artists that we already had recognized, we kind of just figured, you know what, they must be good. Let's just buy these. So he'd order five or six, seven records. Again, two or three weeks later would pass. And then this other new shipment of records would come in. He was probably out of our group of friends, someone who had, you know, the, the capability or the funds to buy these records. And so we would bring him on. He'd provide the records. I'd provide the turntables and the mixer. And then my buddy would provide the audio, which would be the house receiver with the two speakers. And then we would buy, we, we pitched in on a siren light, which was probably you know, maybe not even a foot high. It was probably like eight inches high off the table and then just spun around in a red color. And that was our light show, right? But right, nobody yeah. cared about that. It was just about playing music. And again, we weren't real savvy with it. We were just happy to play and blend records. Sometimes they'd be total train wrecks, but nobody really cared about that. It was just, again, a vibe. And um, you can't, you know, I, I yet to come across that ever again. And I think it was the time and era, again, when we were growing up, um, Wish somebody would recorded that and, and you know, uh, and, and we can reminisce on that, but it's all in our mind, right? And, and it's a memory yeah. that will never go away. Um, and so I kind of just went from there. Um, I knew that I wanted to do radio when I was in high school. So I kind of told myself internally, like, by the time I graduate high school, you know, my next goal is to work in radio. Uh, so I did go to Delta after I graduated. And I went there for a year. Uh, I did their broadcast journalism program. Uh, and fortunately, I was able to meet some people at the time that I was able to get onto a local radio station in town and, and become like a mix show artist back at the time, as they were called. Right. And so we would break new records. Um, but again, so that kind of gives you an idea of how I started. Personally, for me, I didn't realize I was going to be get into DJing so heavy. I know I love music because in the early 80s, if you watched MTV or you see old videos from back in the day, you would only hear the artists like the Madonnas the Michael Jacksons, uh, some of the rock bands would be on there. And one of the artists that was on there that was heavily played was um, Daryl Hall and John Oates. And so the, the record that really did it for me or the song that did it for me was um, Man Eater. I think it was called Man Eater. Um, and it had a, sax a lot of saxophone. So back in the 80s, a lot of music had a lot of saxophone in it. A uh, real popular song was the, the Careless Whisper, you know, the George Michael, the, the Wham song, right? A lot mm -hmm. of saxophone. And so really my first love of music was through the saxophone. And before I even decided to even, you know, dabble in the DJ stuff, I wanted to learn to play sax. So my parents rented a saxophone for me, for me to take lessons in school. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, funds were tight. So after one month of rental fees, it was like, hey, we can't afford to pay for the sax again. So it's either you buy one or you're just gonna have to put it away. And I held on to it for probably another one or two months. I didn't pay the late fees. I gave it back to the to the to the rental company that we bought it bought it from. Uh, felt bad, of course, but I had to put that away. It's like, okay, we're I'm not going to be able to get a sack. So again, me liking music, I kind of fell into the whole break dancing thing, 
and then just kind of took off from there and then fell in love with the culture, uh, with the hip hop sound and the rhymes and the lyrics at the time, uh, and then the whole scratching and then just feeling the positive vibe and the whole dancing collaborated all together and, and uh, just kind of took off from there. I never went back to saying, hey, I want to learn to play an instrument, which I kind of regret now because I would have loved to learn to play, you know, saxophone or just to be able to read music or anything in that regard. Because now it's like, you know, it's 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 so knowledgeable and so important to have that stuff if you want to continue to elevate your game. Right. No, for sure. And then uh, I want to touch on how we got from like radio to then how exclusive DJ came up. But I want to touch on one thing because when I think about, you know, hearing that story, how I came up, I obviously had a very privileged upbringing in DJ world in the sense that one, you know, I had Joe and Marcellus and Alon with the gear already. Right. You know, I learned on essentially Serato S9 and turntables. Uh-huh. And then uh, we all, it was like the internet era. So there was no yeah. music's, music's everywhere, which is like its own problem, I think. But I want to just ask a little bit more about kind of the discovery of music in the vinyl era, in particular, like radio. And I'm just curious, did uh, you being on the radio give you access to music more easily since like you were kind of giving being given records? Or did you still have to go like, like two record stores kind of I'm guessing you did maybe did a little both but I'm wondering what was the music discovery what was the digging process like in that era uh it's still the same in the sense that if you're looking for unique gems you know um a lot of the time uh, the mainstream record labels were not putting those out it was somebody else who was creating them and then somehow they'd get some airplay right because again back in the day you didn't have the access like we have now where we can jump on the phone or on the internet and watch a performance from a DJ, you know, at a boiler room or at some sort of a other uh, day party where you're like, Oh, that was a dope record. or that was a dope this. And that, you know, um, right. it, it was, it was different. Right. So the mainstream um, radio or, or uh, record labels would provide all the hits. So you had the Def Jams, the uh, who were the other Arista, uh, jive you know all these record companies were providing records to us as um, radio djs to play uh, on during the mix shows but then you also had the other stuff that was in between and the in between stuff is what actually for me personally would drive me to the clubs right because the that's the stuff that kind of stood out that they couldn't find anywhere else so you couldn't go to a record store or well, actually my my apologies you could go to the record store and find it because that's mm-hmm. the only place you'd find it. You couldn't get that directly shipped to you from a, a record label because there were there were you know bootlegs. I mean, bootlegs have existed for a while, and you'd find right. these white label records where it looked like somebody wrote the title and everything with a sharpie, and they'd make so many copies. And once you befriended the record store, you know, clerks or whatnot, they would make connections, or you'd call in again, long distance calls. You'd call from here. I'd go to San Jose or San Francisco. And I'd ask about a certain record and they'd be like, oh, yeah, we have 10 copies and be like, hold one for me now. Right. I probably wouldn't get to San Francisco for about another week. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and again, young, I didn't have my own car, so I would have to wait on someone to to go out there with. So it wouldn't be like I could just, hey, guys, we're going to go right now, hang up the phone and and bounce out of there and be like, hey, can you hold it for a week? And I'd somehow find a way to to get there. Um, Those that were cool enough to be like, you want to just us to mail them to you. Right. They would. There was also another record pool that I was actually um, allowed to be a part of 
and a friend of mine introduced me to that. But you had to be the only way you could get into these record pools where you had to be a legitimate working DJ. And most of the time they wanted a DJ who was going to give their records a spin on the radio. And so at that time, the, the record company was called Bata, which stood for Barrier Dance um, Disc Jockey Dance Association or something to that degree. So it was B-A-D-D-A. And there was only, I believe, up to 300 members, right? Right. So the record labels would provide them 300 copies. And then you'd have a little cubby hole that you can, you know, they throw all these records in, you pay your fee and you'd go out there when you can to collect your records. And many a times there'd be certain records that they wouldn't press 300 copies of. They'd only press a hundred, you know, and usually they'd give those to the first 100 members of the group or someone who was actually really putting these records to use. And so you'd miss out on some of those amazing gems. Um, but, but back to your question though, is that I would still have to go to the Bay area and, um, and find certain records that I personally heard from someone else playing them. Right. So I was very influenced by Bay area radio. You know, for me, my DJ heroes, uh, were the Cameron Paul, uh, Michael Erickson, you know, specifically those guys, those guys are the ones that I looked up to that I, they were playing the music and mixing the music the way I enjoyed it. Right. They, they, uh, they knew how to write a mix. They knew how to make great transitions. They knew how to keep music exciting. And obviously, um, you'd only get that in the Bay Area. So for me, that was a big influence. And I knew they were buying their music out somewhere out there. And as soon as I found out what record stores they were shopping at, uh, you know, I kind of became a fan of those record stores. So every once in a great moon, you know, every could be two or three months, I'd make the drive out there with somebody and we'd go out and shop and spend all our money on records, you know, never had, not, you don't know if you ever seen that meme that says you, you, you teach a kid to DJ, you'll never have to worry about him, you know, being a drug addict because that's where we would spend <laughs> all our money, you know? And so that was really honest. That was really honest. Um, again, we were very passionate about that. Uh, and so when we were doing the mix shows, if the PD, which is the program director would allow you to sneak in these other records that were not sponsored or printed by a, a major record company. Uh, he was cool about that. But then again, they started to tighten things down. We're like, yeah, you can't play that. And it's like, why not? I mean, that's a song that everybody loves at the club. And it's like, yeah, but we're not a club. We're the radio and you have to play stuff that, you know, the radio plays. And so it kind of took the fun away from doing mix show stuff because now you, not that you were trying to break records, but you also wanted to play new stuff, you know, something that was yeah. different that kind of separated you from, from everything else. And, um, right they started to get really tight, you know, and it was no longer as fun as, it, as, it, as I envisioned after a while. Right. Um, but yeah, anyway, so that style of music, uh, we were getting all the time. I mean, I was getting stuff from Chicago. Um, it was a place called uh, UC or underground connection. So it was a lot of like hard house, um, stuff that was coming out of, out of the Chicago area. And I picked up a lot of cool records from them, but again, I can only play those at a certain time, which was probably after midnight on the radio, not during mainstream five o'clock, 12 o'clock noon, you know, eight o'clock mix. You right. had to wait till after hours when no one was listening. So I was like, oh my God, you know, and I love house music. <laughs> right. Well, man, it's cool. Thanks for that story. Um, I feel like in that era, I'm sure you appreciated having finding a rare gem so much more. That's one thing I definitely think I didn't really get kind of the culture of like, you know, when you find a dope song, it's like, right. you want to kind of keep it as yours? Because when I came up, it was like, music was just ubiquitous everywhere. 
but I can yeah. see how like kind of that culture originated where like if you spent all day in the store, right, and you and you had to spend a lot of time and effort digging, and you find that one, it makes it really special. It, really it still kind of happens online, but like the finding it is just more going through a bunch of trash. <laughs> That's not very it is. Good. It's just easier. And you know, and more. I think what I appreciate now, but at the same time, kind of takes away from the whole thing of, of yeah. record searching is like when you find something, it's like once you share it online, like everybody knows about it, right? So now yeah. they know exactly where to go, what exactly to buy. And it kind of takes away that feeling of like, I just, like you were saying, just like, I just found something that's unique. Not that you're not trying to share it, but at the same time, it, it's, it is, right? It's almost like you want to be selfish, but you also want to share it because really music is meant to be shared, right? right? I mean, that's, that's what it's about. I, I think it's important. And so I purposely like, okay, I'm not going to hold this to myself. I'm going to show my friends and then my friends will, you know, share that or if they like it and they may not. So it's really up to them. You know, music is, is funny that way where it's like, we all have different tastes and what you may like is something I may hate and vice versa. Uh, and then we might both find something that we're like, we're both vibing into it exactly the same way. So uh, that's, that's one thing about, again, music is that it's, it's very unique in that sense. Um, Sacramento eventually ended up with some really good record stores. So after, you know, maybe two or three years going to the Bay area, San Francisco, I'm sorry, uh, Sacramento did end up putting up a few stores. So my transition and my travel time, uh, was far less uh, because I started to go to Sacramento to the stores there. And the guys that were working the stores there at the time, you know, some of them are still DJs here in, in the Sacramento area uh, that are friends of mine. And so they're still into it. So I, I can I can appreciate and respect those that who been doing things as long as I have even longer. Because um, I really thought like, how long am I going to do this for? You know, and right, right. It, here I am still, you know, having fun with it. Um, so it, it kind of makes you feel like you're kind of still relevant. Nice. So well, yeah, let's jump into the starting exclusive DJ. At what point in your life did you start it? Like, where did you have the idea? Did, did, was it like all at once or was it kind of gradual? Just talk a little bit about the story yeah, well, of, of how that all went down. It, it, it's, it was gradual. You know, again, uh, it went from radio, high school to radio. And then after having some sort of experience on radio and then getting like a little bit of re name recognition, I guess here locally, uh, I started to work at, you know, many of the popular hot nightclubs in town. And through that, occasionally I'd come across people like, hey, I've got a birthday party. I've got a wedding. And I was always, you know, uh, uh, afraid of talking to Mike. I wasn't um, more concerned. I was more concerned with just playing the music, right? But yeah. in order to pick up these gigs, again, sometimes you have to make like, an introduction. Uh, again, I was overthinking things. I'd stress over things that were like, just pick up the microphone and say, Hey, welcome. Right. Table it's not that hard. Now serve. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it took me a while to kind of break that shell for myself. And um, so when I got, I, when I stopped doing the radio, I was working these clubs and I was getting, you know, asked not all the time, but on occasion, Hey, I've got a, a wedding. I've got a wedding. I've got a wedding, occasional quinceanera here and there. And I found like, okay, well, you know what? They're, I'm getting booked occasionally again. Um, and at a certain point in time, I realized like, look, this could be like a legit business, you know? Um, and so I was doing enough business without actually thinking of it as a business for myself that I realized like after a while, like 
the money is in the business side of things, which are the private sector, right? Mm -hmm. The clubs are going to provide you fun and experience. And if you're a heavy drinker, then all the alcohol you want, which I, I'm not a heavy drinker. Um, so like, ah, I'm, I'm cool without the alcohol. You don't need to, you know, I'm not trying to be here to freeload off your drinks. I just, I just want to get paid. And uh, in the market, you know, one thing that I realized for myself living in this particular market, and we're talking about the Central Valley, Stockton, Lodi, Manteca, you know, we are just, um, what, east of the San Francisco area, right, about an hour and a half east that this market is very different than the Bay Area and that this market is different than the Sacramento market and this market is different than the LA market and, and the Bakersfield market. So it, every area has its kind of price range. And so what you can ask for as a DJ, at, at least at the time, was you know uh, you kind of limited yourself, even though you're putting in just the, amount of, the same amount of work as you, were, as you would as a mobile DJ doing a wedding or an event where they paid you more, you were kind of doing yourself a disjustice and a disservice like, look, I could just probably stop doing these bars and these clubs and mm -hmm. go do someone's private event and probably double or triple my, my income for that specific night. Right. And so one time I did an event for someone and I probably charged them like maybe $400 and I, and they were like, okay. And I was like, what? <laughs> okay. Again, you know, so to me, it was like, you were okay with that. Like nobody barked. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like nobody barked about it. And again, yeah. I probably could ask for more. Um, and but I didn't. I felt comfortable enough with that. I thought it was fair for what I was going to provide. And and so I was like, wow, that was not that hard. And as I got more experiences in that regard, I was like, okay. So I started talking to other people and and kind of researching, you know, legit businesses that were already doing the wedding industry. And then I realized, like, oh, there's bridal shows. Oh, where can I find these clients? Right. So I was like, oh, you got to participate in these bridal shows. And so I figured out how to make connections with you know, the venues as far as like, okay, we're going to have a bridal show on this day. This is a fee you have to pay, but you're going to get business out of it. So I started to invest in those. And at first, when I got into that, you know, whatever cool gear I had, I made sure I brought it. Like, oh, you, you want to see cool lights? I'm going to bring them. You want to see these trust towers that no one else has? Cool. I'm going to bring them. So I would bring like, like, a, like a legitimate production, which I didn't need to, to bring. I found that out later. Right. So my booth, if you want to call it that, looked pretty cool. But it was like, I already, I was already paying money into it. So it was like, I was putting all this effort into these bridal shows. Now I was attracting attention, but it wasn't necessarily giving me the booking. So that's what I found kind of odd. Like, look, how come my booth looks so cool? Way better than, you know, X, Y, and Z, but why are they getting all the bookings? Right. So I had to understand that it wasn't about only presentation, like what you, what people walk in and see. Um, it also had to do with pricing and it also had to do with the way you spoke with them. Right. And I realized like, okay, I'm not really presenting myself personally as a person the way I should. Maybe I've got the cool gear and maybe I can right. mix and, and whatever, but they don't care about that. You know, the, the, that's in addition, whatever your persona is, you also have to kind of become a salesman. And so not that I was trying to be convincing, like, oh, you know, this, this, and that, because I'm not a salesman. I'm more of an honest person. So I think where I shot my, my, I always shoot myself in the foot that way too. Is like, I find that I give more information that I than I need to, right? And yeah, that's just because I'm just wanting to be 100% real with them and upfront, and so that they know what they're getting. Um, and so I started to dwindle my production side back. It's like, okay, you know what? I don't need to carry these towers anymore with these moving headlights. I just need to have a nice banner with my business name, maybe some nice brochures, 
right? And a nice presentation on a table, that alone is attractive. You know, not worrying about the towers and the lights and the cool uh, LEDs in the back. It's like, that was above an extra, which is fine. And people still do it now. But then I realized like, and again, I wanted to be in it. Now I, I would see these other productions come in, they'd set up and they tear down in 15, 20 minutes. Like, dude, it takes me an hour to come in and set up right. and do the same thing over, right? And I, I was like, why, why am I killing myself? If, and then they're getting, they're still getting all the business. So um, I learned from that, you know, but long story short is that after so many inquiries of weddings, I realized that, okay, there's more money to be made in the wedding or mobile DJ uh, private sector than there is working for these cool bars and cool clubs. Um, I kind of felt like I had already done it and I was now going to make a little extra money and concentrate more on building a business that was going to be long-term because these clubs come and go, right? So if that club shuts down for any reason, out of your control, somebody can have a fight in the parking lot. Um, they can have bad service that things that are out of your control. Guess what? You're no longer having a job either. So I felt like right. I need to take actions into my own hands. Right. And, and so therefore I realized, well, let me build this business. I don't know what to call it. So it actually started as exclusive music network. Right. And I was trying to be cool and savvy with the word. So I was exclusive. Okay. We won't use the E we'll just start with X in the exclusive music network. And then it became like, okay, well then it's XMN DJs. And then it's like, then people were saying, Oh, you're the X-Men DJ. And it's like, no, I'm not X-Men. You know, <laughs> it kind of became comical that way. And I was like, I didn't. So then it kind of turned me off. And yeah. uh, I was like, man, you know, and again, as you get older and you talk to the right people, they realize like, you know, marketing has a lot to do with it. And mm -hmm. so at the time, you know, the internet was just kind of starting to really take off and like, you don't want people searching for X-Men cause they don't know what they're doing. And, you know, you just want something basic and simple that remember, people will remember. So I was like, oh, exclusive is easy word. And, and obviously we're DJ. So you want to have, if you can, the word DJ in there. Nowadays, it's, it doesn't matter anyway. But I figured, well, that sounds easier to spell out to remember than exclusive music network. And now you have to put exclusive without the E. Again, the more things, <laughs> again, as I got older, the more things we give people to do, the less they're going to remember. So let's just make it easier. And I was not going for you know, the younger crowd was going for someone who was already, who had a job. So most of the people are elderly in their, you know, when I say older, elderly, I was probably looking for the 30, 40 year old. And at the time I was early, my, my early twenties. So I felt young. Um, so I had to kind of rethink the whole process. And then I had already printed brochures and invested in that. So I waited for that to kind of dwindle down that inventory to go down. And then I decided to switch the name of the business to just exclusive DJ. Right. And, um, and then from that, again, I started that in 2001. It's funny because I just came across the, a piece of paperwork the other day. I was going through some old files that had the date when I first went to the, um, what was the building, administrative building where you go and register your business name, right? right. And you have the date, the name. And, and that's when I was like, oh, this, was, this started out as exclusive music network. But then I had to go right. refile, you know, a few years later. Uh, so yeah, I started that in 2001. And that was strictly for business decisions to see like, you know what, I'm going to make a lot more money. This is going to have a lot more longevity for my own personal growth. Um, and for my own financial growth, if I just take matters into my own hands, instead of trying to stick with what's cool and relevant now that in five years could not be because again, restaurants and clubs come and go just like anything else. So I wanted to be able to still be standing after that, you know, uh, and, and luckily it's, it's worked out, you know, luckily it's worked out for me. That's awesome, man. Um, so what was your, you talked a little bit about like going to wedding expos. 
how did your like customer acquisition strategy change over time? And what would you say that you do now? Obviously you've been in the game for a while, so I'm sure you have a lot of word of mouth, but do you do anything now um, like online or like kind of active customer marketing strategies to try to get new clients or is it a lot of just inbound at this point? Uh, a lot of it is just inbound because I've, I already have like, what, what I look at, at uh, my business as, as um, like it has seasonal changes, right? So I know that from April through probably September, it's going to be more focused on weddings, right? And I know that I'm going to get X amount of weddings um, based on the connections that I have with either wedding planners or uh, venues themselves, that I'm going to get a percentage of a referral business just directly from them. The other thing is, you know, if I market or really try to be creative online through a social media to promote specials or whatever, which I haven't done in years. Um, luckily, I have not had to do that where you have to offer like, well, you know, if you, if you buy five hours from us, you're going to get the sixth hour free. Or if you pay this, you're going to get an extra uplight. You know, you're going to add on these extra things. And so I did have to do that at the beginning, right? Where you offered an incentive of them booking with you. Uh, and again, I learned through just through the time. And fortunately, that after a while, I didn't have to do that anymore, right? I had to keep, I had to hold, create value for myself, right? And, and just because you're doing a bunch of business doesn't mean that you're doing great, you know, because you could be offering business for dirt cheap and staying busy week, uh, year after year, but you're financially not growing, but you're just working more, right? So I had to kind of realize that as well. It's like, okay, I don't want to work. As, as I've gotten older, I realized like, okay, my time is valuable, more valuable now than it was before. Um, one of the things that I've personally realized is that, you know, I have a lot of experience in this stuff, in this, in this field. And the way I came up as a DJ um, have, is very different than some of the other one, some of the younger, younger generation that's come up now that is in the wedding industry. I've had the experience of what I know what it feels like to lug in, you know, heavy equipment. I know I have the experience of, I know what it's like to go dig for records. I know I have the experience of, you know, how heavy those milk crates were with records or so forth. So all that stuff for me has made me, um, I'm not going to say a better DJ, but it's allowed me uh, an experience that I know that someone else will never have, right? And so my value, I value myself more in that regard that I feel like I've had more experience. So I'm able to convey that to the clients that I speak with and they see it like, you know what, you, not that they know me from doing this for so many years, but the conversations that I have, I think it puts them at ease. Like, look, you, you do come across as someone who has the experience. And so those that are looking for a specific type of DJ, right? Um, there are people who, who want a DJ who can talk and be very active and go out and grab you and, you know, and, and show you the, the, the coolest dance. And then you've got the real laid back DJ who really doesn't, you don't realize he's there. You know, he's, it's almost like you could just play music in the background. He is there. He is playing the right music. So I would consider, you know, uh, lack of better words, be like an iPod DJ, right? Where it's like, you've got a playlist. You're going to hear every song that you, that you like, but it's almost like on a program mode. And like, again, you have the over the top guy who's going to come at you and be like, Hey, what's going on? My name is so-and-so. What would you like to hear? Let me show you, come on out here. Let me show you this. Right. And they're very active and they're very over, uh, you know, they put on, not, I wouldn't say they put on the show, but they've got a lot of energy and some people are turned away, turned off by that. And some people love that again. So there are different DJs for every, every different client. I, right. I'm in the middle. I'm in the middle where 
you know, I'll be professional about it. I'll make all the announcements you need. Um, but what I find out is that there are DJs who, who um, don't know how to mix genres, right? So if they're on a hip hop genre, they're going to stay on that for 30 minutes and then they're going to transition to maybe a uh, country genre, right? And then after that country genre is over, they come back and they circle around through an 80s rock genre or whatever. So with music the way it is nowadays, obviously you can touch on all the genres and mix everything here and there. In my experience with this particular market that I work in, that we're in, um, there are some very inexperienced DJs that can't blend all of that together, right? And yeah. so for me, there could be a creativity side of being able to blend a variety of different genres all together, um, creates an atmosphere on the dance floor that some people don't realize the holy moly was i just dancing to a country song that had a hip-hop beat underneath and then he took me to a fist pumping song and now i'm doing you know a two-step and so forth so it's like you give them everything within that 30 minute time range where they don't realize they just dance to hip-hop they dance to edm they dance to latin you know and then the country song and so forth where there are uh, unfortunately you know not because they don't want to it's just it's everyone has a different skill set uh, I'm not a master at it, but I, I've learned to read crowds and recognize like, you know what, today is going to be mostly R&B, soul, and hip hop. And next week's wedding is going to be more country and Latin with a little bit of pop and so forth. So I've learned to recognize what works a crowd. And that just comes from the experience, you know, and I think if you started off now recently, it's going to take you a little while. Um, to understand how to read a crowd without necessarily having them giving you a, a sheet of paper that says, okay, this is what we want you to play. You're going to have to figure it out. Right. And I think right. with all the yeah. years of experience that I've had, that's where I think I've, I've, I've kind of created my value internally where it's like, ah, eh, you know what? I, I would do your wedding, but I feel or your event, you know, but I, I've got to, I got to, you know, have some self-worth as well. Um, so, yeah, and again, it's, it's sort of worked out. It sort of worked out for me. I think it's a time thing because, like, I always say, like, when you're first starting, you know, you should just go try to DJ wherever they're going to let you set up to play music. But then once you, yeah. you know, as you're saying, as you get older, um, like age wise and DJ wise, you get more skilled and your, your, um, what you're offering becomes more valuable. You have to value yourself higher. And so I think it's kind of just a natural progression of like, you know, skill, time, energy all those things. And then you, you're in a good spot where you can like do the things that you really want to do and make the money that you're trying to make. And then if you right. want to do something for free, then you can do that too. Nothing, no shame yeah. in that, but you're, you're able to have right. more choice, which I think is cool. Um, yeah. And I think, it, you know, it, and it works out for the best. I mean, again, there are events that, um, that I won't take, you know, not specifically to anything specific, but there's just events that I just feel like, you know what, that's not my, I don't feel I do a good job for you. And, it, and so not all business is good business, right mm -hmm. uh for for the client or for you as as the person that's going to provide the service it's like if you already internally know you're not going to be able to provide the service that they deserve then you know you personally shouldn't do it but you know unfortunately sometimes um financial situations you know prevent that so you're like yeah i just need the money so i'm gonna go do it and then you end up really tanking the job and you're like oh man what did i do that for you didn't have a good time they had a they had a terrible time and so it's not a win-win for nobody and so okay. I've, you know, I've recognized that years ago. It's like, you know, not, I don't need to take every job, not because I'm not, you know, fond of the money. It's more of the, um, I'm more concerned with the client's um, 
you know, the outcome of the event. It's like, if I feel comfortable doing it, then I'm going to do it. You know, if somebody was to say, Hey, I want you to do, you know, an old, I mean, straight up, you know, early countries gig for five hours, I, I would have to turn it down because I don't know country like that. <laughs> you you know, that. some of the stuff today I can let do it. My but, homies. Yeah. You know, let me get somebody else. Let me refer you to someone else who I know has been doing this for a while and probably can do a, a better job than, than I can. So, right. yeah. Cool. So, um, wanted to talk about what, what kind of, um, tools do you use to run your business? So in terms of like, I guess I'm, you know, I make a lot of like DJ finance tracking tools and I try to create tools for people who are like basically doing nothing and then can go to like zero to one, you know, using a spreadsheet or using kind of basic tools. But I'm wondering since you've been established for a while, you know, what are you using to track your finances and do you have any other like invoicing tools or what would you recommend in terms of like a technology stack? You know what? Uh, for me, um, what I use is just the accounting of, of the Quick Tools. I mean, a QuickBooks. Sorry, okay, QuickBooks. Cool, yeah. Uh, yeah, QuickBooks is, um, you know, depending on what what, and I track things as you know as a monthly scenario. It's like a lot of times people, you know, take a, a job and they say, you know, it's only going to pay me four hundred dollars. It's like, okay, well, those four hundred dollars at the end of the month, you know, let's say you're making two thousand dollars or six thousand dollars. Now you have six thousand four hundred dollars, right? Like you're looking at it as a one-time gig, but look at it at the end of the month and you'll realize that when you add all these little $200 jobs, $400 jobs, $500, now all of a sudden you've got $1,200 that you were not accounting for at the time. So everyone wants that big, big job, right? It's like, oh, I got a $3,000, $4,000 gig. Those are the ones I'm searching for. It's like, and that's all you're going to take? It's like, cool. If you can, if you have those kind of means, great. But little things like, you know, I'll do, since I have the gear, you know, is I'll do during the week uh, an occasional AV job, which, you know, someone may come in from out of town and want to do a small, you know, presentation for a pharmaceutical company to try to push something to a hospital here. So they'll call up and be like, hey, I need a projector and I just need one mic with a, you know, with a speaker. Okay, well, this is going to cost you X, Y, Z. Sure, no problem. You go and do it. It's two or three hour job. You know, granted, it's not a $3,000 job or whatever it may be. But it's something you make during the week on your off time. So you start to add those little things up. By the end of the month, you're like, whoa, that was, you know, another $2,000 or $3,000 that I made by going to do these little small jobs. If you have, again, this is just me. Not everyone has to do it. It's like, I have the means to be able to do it. I'd rather have my money, my, my gear make me money than just sitting around in the garage doing nothing, you know? Right. And so I try to stay productive in that sense. Uh, and at the end of the month, you know, when you're calculating whatever you spent, and whatever you brought in, you're going to be able to see like, okay, where, where am I getting my money from? Cause I have, you know, I have lighting, audio, video, I have a photo booth. So you have to recognize like where are you really uh, bringing in money from? And then kind of focus on that. If you want to say, you know what, I'm not really bringing in money on the photo booth, but I'm spending a lot more money by either a paying an attendant, having to buy new props, uh, you know, buying the printer paper and all that other stuff. And you're like realizing like if, if my ROA on that is not, you know, very profitable, maybe photo booth is not something that I should be focused on. Maybe I need to focus more on this AV stuff because I'm getting more, more jobs that way. And I'm having to turn down jobs on that side because I only have one or two projector screens or one and two projectors or whatever. Right. So you'll be able to see that through QuickBooks um, based on how you categorize your, your gear and your business aspects so that every month you can look at that, you know, what they call it the pre the PNL. And see what what business uh, what side of your business is bringing you more money, um, and maybe you want to focus on that. 
So you can you tag like so let's say you have an invoice, you'll be able to see like which items, and then it will show you like which item sales basically are. Yeah. So you you know again, you you you're gonna have every everybody's QuickBooks is different. So you itemize things, right? You create a um, some sort of a spreadsheet or something internally there that says, okay, I'm gonna call this photo booth, right? And from that photo booth, you're going to have a drop down that says, okay, printer paper, photo props, photo booth attendance. So then you're like, okay, I paid out X amount of dollars for the, for the attendant. I paid X amount of dollars for the paper this month. I paid X amount of dollars to get these props for this special event, right? So at the end of the month, you can break that down. And the way you've got to categorize, it's going to allow you to say, oh, you know what? This month I only spent, you know, $50 on one set of photo paper. And then I spent, you know, X amount of dollars paying this guy or this gal to run the booth and so forth. And then once you start tracking that down monthly, monthly, uh, you know, because I use it on a, you want to track, track these downs quarterly. And then eventually you get your, 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 your end result is you're going to be able to see based on how you itemize this, how much you spent on that specific part of your business. Right. So we're talking about the photo booth. So you can break that down independently. And then you have another section where it's like, okay, I'm going to categorize this as AV, you know, AV stuff. And so you realize like, okay, you know what? I didn't have any projectors this month. I had a rent from, from someone and I have to continue to rent this screen from this person. So you're, you're, you're dishing out money for rentals and you realize like, you know, if I just bought myself one, I would have already paid for that based on the, the accounting that I'm tricking being track of here monthly. So yeah, if, if you, QuickBooks is pretty, is a slick, is a slick program to, to use uh, for any type of business. Right. I'm like right in between where like, my business wasn't to the, my personal DJ business wasn't to the point where I felt like I needed it, but like I'm right on yeah. the cusp for like using the software to automatically import the transactions is right. like right, right in my future. So I'm like right, right in between using it. And I want to do like an article about it to kind of talk about the transition and, and when it's helpful. Cause I don't think right. everybody needs it, but once you reach a certain point, especially if you're doing it full time, uh, I think yeah. it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And if you've got multiple aspects of things that you're offering, right. Cause again, I'm a DJ for the most part, you know, most of my business comes from doing events, but because of the times that I've spent on gear and invested on certain projects, right? I didn't go out and buy a projector just because one day I decided, well, I just want to buy a projector. I bought it because there was enough interest in someone saying, Hey, do you offer slideshow services with your DJ? It's like, well, no, but you know what? Hold on to that thought. And then you go and do the research. Like, you know what? I'm going to buy, you know, $600 projector. And I've already gotten like four inquiries for, you know, slideshow presentations. And if I charge them X, Y, Z, that's going to pay for the projector. And then I'm going to continue to use that in the future for other purposes, which now are being used to do presentations, uh, PowerPoint presentations for these pharmaceutical companies, right? So it pays itself off in the end. But again, those are when you realize like, was that a good investment or not? You know, there's been bad investments that I bought where I went and bought a bunch of um, strobe lights. Right. Because I was doing productions and parties, but that kind of took a thing sideways once, you know, COVID hit. And then before that, you know, just finding venues to throw these events at were kind of limited. So I went and bought these all these lights and I probably used them once. Right. So I'm like, man, so I made this bad investment, bad choice. Right. And so you live and learn, you know, that's part of business. You live and learn and you realize like, okay, I need to focus my attention on things that are going to, you know, give me a good return on my investment. For sure. All right, dope, man. Well, this has been dope. Before we go into the last part of like DJ style, just any last like thoughts, advice for young DJs out there who either just getting started and in terms of like, you know, want to take it from like the bedroom out to their first gigs and or people who are like looking to 
potentially create a mobile business for themselves? Like any kind of high level um, advice for them? Um, I mean, I, I think you, you definitely have to love what you do. You know, you have to enjoy, I mean, maybe love is a strong word, but you really have to enjoy what you do and you have to be sincere about the service that you are wanting to offer and have someone expect you to pay for, right? So I think that in general in business, like if you, if you are willing to, you know, there's going to be days where you're going to probably put in more than you, you thought you were, right? So there's been plenty of jobs where I, you know, I end up spending extra time on either planning uh, or actually uh, investing in that. I was like, man, that was, that was not even worth the money that I paid for. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you sulk, if you sulk on that and you feel like you're always losing, then I think you're, you're like kind of in the wrong aspect of it. It's like, you have to let those come and go because if you really enjoy what you're doing, you're, you're probably going to have limit feelings of that regard where you feel like you're always losing because you should be enjoying yourself. Right. Even if you're not making the amount of money that you thought, if you're enjoying yourself, then that alone has a value in it, you know, because um, I think in the world we live in, you know, with all the bad things that you see all the time, it's like, you, we should have happiness in our lives, right? And so if DJing, uh, whether it's for thousands of dollars or for minimal dollars, if you're actually enjoying, if the process of DJing and the, you know, the, the element of you performing somewhere for someone gives you that joy, you know, regardless of the money that you're making. I mean, I think that's an important thing to have as, as a person in, in general, right? Because we, we, we need to fulfill our souls with happiness. And so I think if we're feeling that the whole aspect of having X worked extra longer or did a little extra thing and didn't get paid for, it kind of goes to the wayside, right? Because it always finds a way in the, on the other end that you're going to get repaid. You're going to find jobs where you're like, dude, I'm getting paid to do this. Like, seriously, I feel like I, I'm cheating someone, right? right. It, it, you're going to have the bads and the goods and the bad. So you have to understand that there will be, there is a balance, right? There is a balance. And if you can understand that, I think, um, you know, you will understand that um, things will come and things will go. So don't just focus on, on the good things. Uh, or on the bad things, it's like, you're going to have both. And if you find a balance between both, I think you can be very successful at anything, you know, especially in business, but you have to kind of comprehend that. Um, again, that's just for me, because I, I enjoy music, and I enjoy playing music for people. And I love the creativity side of it. And when you can be creative, and you can see the crowd react to your creativity, that gives you even a more sense of like, okay, that was worth it. You know, that was worth it. Um, it, it's an, it's a fulfillment internally that makes me feel good. And, you know, obviously I think it creates a happy soul, um, which relieves stress on your life. Again, the, I'm not a pill popping person kind of guy, so I don't need to be introduced in any synthetics in my body. It's like, <laughs> if I can create that happiness just naturally, you know, with what I'm doing, yeah, that soul is happy. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, start off you know, we all started somewhere uh, and just grinding, you know, continue to talk with people because you're going to have people who lead you in the right direction and you're going to have people who, who have malice, you know, but you're going to be able to spot those people who don't want to see you come up, you know, and once you find the people that want to see you grow, you know, um, take their words to heart, um, you know, 
seriously, take them serious. Don't, don't brush them off, you know, and, and be thankful to them. You know, you don't have to give them monetary uh, kickbacks or uh, anything like that. A, a genuine person is going to want to just give because, and you're going to sense that and you're going to feel it's like this person is legitimately going to want to help me or give me, you know, I'm, I'm on the tail end of me on the business side of it. I've been doing this for a long time. So anytime that I can help someone um, with any, Thing in regards to the business is like they approach me how do you make this edit or how do you word you buy the speaker what you know any recommendations like I'm going to be honest I'm not going to hold anything back that says I'm going to steer this guy the wrong way because I don't want him to have what I have you know it's like what, what good does that do it's like you're we're only here for a short time right so the next phase of people has to come in and do do this this thing carry it along and so if, if, if you're willing to help them I mean again I believe in the fact that you know karma is a big thing and so I'm willing to just bet on karma and, you know, be, be open and genuine with people uh, about my business and what I do, as opposed to trying to hold things back because I'm afraid that they're going to surpass me or they're going to be better than me. And it's like, Hey, more power to them, right? More power to them. Uh, and hopefully they'll bring you along with them. If they become successful, it's like, Hey, you know what? You helped me out when I was just getting started. Uh, let me get you here. Or let me buy you this or, let me, you know, let's just work to this together, right? So I, I think it's important that we make connections with, with really, with everyone, but be selective of who you really, uh, I guess, um, connect 100% with. And you'll see the people who have uh, malice in their heart and those who are like legit, like, you know, people who want to see you grow and, and show you that love. That's, right. that's kind of what I, I, I do. Yeah, 100% genuine relationships are always the, the uh, name of the game. And again, just to bring it back to the opening, thank you for uh, in, you know putting yourself into us and, and giving us that wisdom and, and being a good relationship with us and someone that we could always count on. Even even now, I'm hitting you up for gigs to work at Pacific, so appreciate. <laughs> yeah, that. yeah, no. And anytime I'm able to help, you know, I'm I'm always willing. I mean, you guys are good people, um, and I like to see you guys and continue to see your guys' growth. I mean, seeing your guys' uh stories and, and what you guys are doing. It's like, wow, this is incredible, right? I mean, these are uh, some young adults here who really uh, found a way, you know, to um, take themselves to another level from where they started years ago. And again, that's, I think that's amazing for you guys. And I love to see like just anyone grow, you know, it's, it's, it's awesome. And I'm a supportive of that. It's like, you know what, I'm going to go check out this person because I saw him or her grow. I just want to go see their show. And it's not because I'm looking for it. It's like, I just enjoy it, you know? And uh, so you guys are, are doing amazing things and, you know, hats off to you guys. And, uh, you know, so keep growing. Word. All right, man. Well, let's, uh, let's tie it up here with just the, um, the ending style portion. I always like to touch on this. So number one, what, what music are you listening to when you're not DJing when no one else is listening? And then number two, what's your library organization strategy? Oh, um, I'm, I like house music, right? I've always been a house music lover since back in the day. I, although I, you know, I didn't get into house music till the early nineties. Um, from that point onward, obviously just anything that was upbeat, dancey, positive. Um, most of the time it was a groove, right? Where it had a soulful sound or some sort of a funky bounce to it. That's what kind of drew me before the uh, EDM styles kind of started to come in in the, you know, late two thousands. Uh, or mid 2000, whatever it was. Um, but prior to that was, you know, that, and, and I'll still listen to today is uh, the old school hip hop, 
you know, the the real what I consider like, you know, the goat is Rakim to me, right? I love his flow, uh, the lyrics that he spits, uh, and and they're still relevant. It's weird because like a lot of those old hip hops, right? Like the Grandmaster Flash, and, and they talked about things in society back then that are still happening today, right? And so it's like, wow, that lyric still hits today. It means the same today, or it even hits harder today because of what they were going through, whatever they were experiencing, right? This was all stuff that was coming from the streets. And, and you know, sad to say, unfortunately, some of those things are still going on today, right? Not to get political or anything like that, but it, it's a trip. So you listen to those stories from the old back in the day. Um, some of the new hip hop artists, you know, throw out some really cool lines like that, but I'm really more stuck on the back end of the old hip hop back in the days. And then really, if I go in the car, if I'm going to work, you know, wherever I might be going, it's usually house music. That's really what nice. I'm playing, you know, Love, because it has makes a, way more sense now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lil <Frank>. So <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. Cool. House then in terms of, uh, I love that. I love that. In terms of library organization, everyone has a different style. Do you have like a general strategy that you like, how do how do you get from like listening to music all the way to like, it's organized in your strata crate? Oh man. I'd be lying if I say I have an organization skill or, or any type of library, <laughs> I'd be making that up. I, I really don't, you know, um, I do have folders obviously that I've created on Serato where I may have, and again, this is just real basic stuff. And I'm sure I got to assume I could be wrong. Everyone has, you know, uh, music laid out based on either the decades or the genre of style of music. Right. So if you have, um, you like hip hop, you know, early hip hop, you're going to probably put a bunch of, you know, pre 1990 hip hop hits in this particular folder. If you like nineties R and B and hip hop, you're probably going to go put that stuff in that folder. Right. And it just makes it easier to go through. Um, same thing with house or, you know, for me, I, I, what works for me is I have a folder and I just call it old school. Anything that I, in my world that I consider to be called old school from mm -hmm. where I grew up, I just drop it in there. Cause it didn't, it doesn't need to make sense to you. It just needs to make sense to me. Right. Right. <laughs> That that's what that's what's important is that um, our organizational skills don't have to matter to your buddy who's also the DJ. They just have to matter to you because it's not like we're using. He's not using my library, and I'm not using his. Although we may be using the same songs, we categorize them differently, mm -hmm. right? So the perfect example is I met with a client today whose wedding I'm doing, and so I asked her a question about what music you think that you'd like to have played during like the, the cocktail hour right because again all, everything that i do as far as wedding related stuff goes is important to me from the point that they do their ceremony to they transition to a cocktail hour to a dinner time and then to eventually reception it's like it's not just let's let me find a playlist on spotify and let me just roll that because somebody created so i'm gonna just roll that right it's like no that's that's the easy cheap way out it's like create something or the client that is specifically to their case. So when I asked her, I was like, what would you think you'd like to? Most of the time they don't know you. And that, this is where it's important where you, your experience will kind of guide your client through the, through this whole thing. It's like, do you like hip hop? Do you like rock? Do you like country? And then, you know, and then, so it's like, okay, that's about you. What about your guests? And they're like, Oh, I don't know what my guests like. Well, you, you invited them, right? You <laughs> should know this is your friends and family. What do you yeah. think they're into? And then they're like, you know what? I never thought about that. You know? So, it opens up a little more dialogue and it goes deeper into the conversation. And then it allows me to really uh, curate a playlist ahead of time 
uh, on my folder that I know is going to be to their liking. So when I asked her about that, she says, oh, just, you know, just, I like, you know, the old school stuff. And I was like, okay, let me ask you what your old school is. Cause I know what, I know what my think, what my old school is, what is your, and then, so she brought up, she said, oh, you know, like, like, like a uh, Def Leppard. And I was like, oh, Def Leppard is definitely not old school for me. Right. That's definitely more eighties rock in my perspective. Right. So I would right. put that That's in an eighties rock yeah. era. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Not, I wouldn't say old school. And so, you know, she kind of laughed about it because it's like, you, you understand it's like, I am 50, you are in your early twenties. So I can understand how you would think that's old school to you, but that's more 80. And so she laughed about it and we had, you know, giggled and it made sense. It was like, okay, now I get it. Now I know why you're asking me these things, right? Because yeah, yeah. your parents are probably what old school is and they would probably fall in line with what, more what I think of old school is, but your old school is definitely not, not old school, right? So again, <laughs> so yeah. everybody's folders are different. And so again, back to what I was saying is that your old school in your particular folder, I don't know what you would consider old school, right? What, so let me ask you that is like, what do you consider old school? Uh, probably eighties, nineties, I think two thousands was, I was like growing up young kid, like 10 ish, something like that. Okay. Um, so yeah, I would probably put like, I guess there's different kinds of old school as well. I think rock might be in there, like a lot of Motown kind of stuff. <laughs> um, but why would you it, consider that? So if somebody said, I want old school, right? Like for me. I don't consider, I don't consider rock old school. Um, and so I guess the word old school is kind of just a general term, right? It just means yeah, old music, I guess, for most people, right? It, right exactly. Yeah, it's, it's just subjective. like before so, this time. <laughs> yes, right. Before this time. So you're, you mentioned 90s. So to me, again, in my era, I, I wouldn't consider anything past the 90s old school no more, right? To me, the old school is before the 90s. Uh, and I wouldn't even say 70s because now the way I categorize it in my head, again, this is just me, is I take the trends of music that were popular back in the days in the 70s for me were disco era days, were like the Motown era days, right? Uh, and then you had your, uh, there was other like uh, classic rock, right? Pre, pre 80 stuff. So you had that to me would be 70s. And then when you get to the 80s, for me, that's what I would consider old school for me would be like the soul, um, R&B, funk, um mm -hmm. that's what i would consider old school for me right your earth winds and fires your cameos your rick james yeah, uh, yeah. your uh, michael jackson's you know your cheryl lynn's uh, all that stuff to me is like what i would consider old school and then so somebody starts talking about oh i want to hear donna summer and i want to hear the bgs and i want to hear oh it's like okay you're talking about disco now you're we're talking disco that's pre-80s uh and then before that you had your 60s you know your your doo-wops and your bebops and um, again, our categories, we, we may play the same music, but we categorize them different in, in our folders in, in Serato. Right. Right. Um, so when it comes to libraries, I guess to, to answer your question is like, I create them based on the way I feel or where that specific song falls within that genre. So I'll have my eighties, nineties, seventies, sixties, and fifties, and then I'll have today's top hits, you know, uh, hip hop, and then I'll have a house music folder that is top 40 and then i'll have my own folder was like okay this is the kind of stuff that's deeper that's harder that i know i can't get away with at a wedding but if i was doing someone's popular you know party at their own house or this is they really wanted to go deep with house music i'm gonna hit them with this and and same thing with hip-hop 
right? right, uh, right. And then you've got your you got your West Coast hip hop in there. And again, so I guess it, it's based on I don't, I don't want to say age, but you know, again, my old school is different than yours, and and vice versa. That's why I love this question because there's just always a, a unique answer. I need yeah. to hear I need oh, to hear absolutely. a uh, DJ Frank Tree house mixtape. <laughs> Someday. Any of those? No, I probably you know what I I, I, I probably do. I uh, funny you mentioned that because uh, my son Frank, which you know, he just bought a cassette tape, and I was a cassette player, and I have one here at home because I still have old um, house music tapes that I would record from the radio. And he heard me playing one, one time. Yeah. And he heard me playing. He's like, can I get a copy of that? I was like, like, you're going to buy, you don't want to copy this tape. And again, it just kind of was intriguing because I think with technology being what they are and what it is now, I don't know. Now, do you personally record stuff? That's why I've got a question. So do you, have you ever recorded mixes through Serato for yourself? Yeah, I have mixes. Okay. it's also through Serato. Yeah. So when you, when you record, you're recording into your computer, your hard drive, or, or mm-hmm. what are you doing? Yeah. Correct. All right. So obviously that, and that's a digital sound, right? So have you tried recording going through your mixer and then going out to a tape deck, like going back to analog and reverse? I like, have you tried to make a tip on it? Yeah. So I was, I was thinking about that. It's like, I wonder what it would sound like, right? Since everything is digital, if we went back and reverse and recorded into analog, like right. how would that sound? And if we were only to say, somebody says, hey, make me a mixtape. And you're like, okay, I've got a mixtape for you. And then you legitimately <laughs> hand them tape. a mixtape. Yeah, be like, yeah. you know, it. I, I think kind of it kind of creates that whole, like, I want to hear this, but I don't have a resource to play this. Like, we'll figure it out. Find someone who does, right? That's the only way you're going to be able to hear this. I don't know. It's kind of unique in that sense, as opposed to, you know, the way technology is nowadays. Right. To, like, just distribute it. And you can play it on your phone or whatever. It's like, I think there's value in that, you know, where it's like, this is the only way you're going to hear this mix is to be able to have a copy of it on, a, on an actual tape. Right. Um, again, just having the means and the resources to goof around and play around with, with old technology and new technology. I think it's, uh, again, interesting. All right. That's cool. My, I remember when I was a kid, my dad, my dad's a musician. And so yes. he, would, okay. he would like record, you know, songs for like my stepmom and stuff like, and it would be yeah. on tape and I still have one of the tapes. So really when you're talking about your tape it kind of reminded me of that it's pretty cool yeah um, and you know what i mean and and then you have a physical tape of it right yeah and now i gotta like yeah find a tape player and hope it still plays <laughs> exactly right is it still in but its, its case cool. or just kind of floating around i don't think it's in the case oh you better <laughs> find the case little i know man. you better treasure that <laughs> i know Awesome, man. Well, DJ Frank G, exclusive DJ. If anyone is in the Central Valley, needs a mobile, needs production, hit up my hit up my guy here. Thank you again for coming on the business of DJing. This has been awesome. Um, any last words? Anything? Any place people can find you online, social media, anything like that? Um, I'm on uh, Instagram. It's just uh, DJ Frank G, all one word. Uh, and then my business is exclusive DJ group on IG as well as Facebook. Um, and then on the web, we have a website, exclusivedj.net. That's where we're at. And then obviously we're on Yelp. So you can always find and see reviews and pictures on Yelp. If you're looking for someone to provide some sort of a, a mobile gig for you, you know, um, check us out there and check out the reviews, check out the pictures, and then, you know, send us an email or call. We're easy to find. And so we'd be happy to hook you up with what what's available and be, you know, glad to help. Awesome, man. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate you for, uh, yeah, I appreciate you reaching out and making this happen. It was fun. 100%.